in this medicine world, which I think is something that we really need to look at. It is very celebrated to continuously press to push on the limits of experience. There's not a lot of gentleness. I think more and more we're starting to introduce more understanding of the nervous system, of of taking a more gentle approach, understanding the nervous system and what it can truly hold. Welcome to an all new season of Off the Gram, the show where we bring you straight into the trenches with us to help you live your best life, channel your inner girl boss, and navigate the ever-changing landscapes of wellness and social media. Hey girl, hey! Hey girl, hey! Whew, today is a loaded one. I'm excited to jump in. I also think this topic is big and scary and maybe totally foreign to some people. So let me go into it first by explaining who we're going to interview and wait until you hear her story. Mary Spirito, founder of Ritual and Routine, is a gifted healer and master coach who specializes in supporting individuals too self-aware for therapy, her words, with a unique approach that combines various healing modalities Mary guides her clients on a transformative journey of self-discovery, embracing authenticity, joy, and purpose. Through her teachings, workshops, and public speaking engagements, she continues to touch the lives of many, spreading a message of healing, self-empowerment, and conscious living. I started following Mary when she began sharing about a scary but transformative experience she had after a psychedelic experience left her with crippling PTSD and nowhere to turn. She quickly realized that though many people had shared similar stories in response to hers on social media, there wasn't really anyone specializing in this type of PTSD, which she classifies as psychedelic trauma. Get ready to hear Mary's story of growth, awareness, and taking her own power back and her decision to turn around and help others do the same. Her mission today is to empower individuals to integrate heightened self-awareness into a path of deep healing and empowerment. Mary also hosts the Ritual and Routine podcast, further amplifying her message and inspiring positive change in communities. Listen to this show if you've heard all about plant medicine, but have been scared and want to know more about psychedelic trauma and how to heal in case it happens to you. You've ever felt, quote, too self-aware for therapy, end quote, and are eager to discover alternative game-changing rituals and routine for unlocking your true potential, or you're intrigued by the mind-body-spirit connection and want to learn practical ways to explore your conscious awareness. All right, Mary, welcome. Thank you, Jamie. Thank you, Heidi. Happy to be here. We're so happy to have you here. So, I've long loved you, loved your page. We all ran in the same circles in New York and kind of the like wellness influencer scene, but that takes many different shapes and we all grow and evolve into our own callings. And I have loved watching you evolve to take on, in my opinion, all things awareness and to see it in a really beautiful, feminine, but powerful way. I was listening to your podcast for a while. I, th- I love it. I love the sound of your voice. It's like literally puts me in a trance. And I found your take on psychedelics in particular fascinating. And I want to tell you why really quickly, because I think it's important for me to ground you in where I come from. So it kind of grounds this conversation. I'm a drug addict in recovery for many years now. So I have always found psychedelics in this latest iteration fascinating, but like at arm's length. I just unfortunately can't dip my toe back in that water because for me, it just could prove to be too dangerous. I don't take mind or mood altering substances, but I am fascinated and fascinated by the movement to popularize and normalize this deep kind of journey within through plant medicine. So I've been intrigued by this. I've been watching your journey and I've heard a lot about ayahuasca. I've heard a lot about mushrooms. I did my own share of mushrooms in high school, not for really a spiritual journey and it didn't end up that way, but I wish it was. But Bufo, I had never heard about it until I saw it on your page and then listened to your podcast where you shared about it. And actually, I listened to the podcast where you were gearing up to your first experience. And then I started kind of checking in as things took a turn. So can you start, this is a two-pronged question and it's loaded. So feel free to take it at your own pace. Can you start by telling us what that is and what it's meant to do and what the journey is meant to do? And then afterwards, we can talk about what happened to you. Absolutely. So to give context to the experience, there are many beautiful psychedelic medicines that are available. Some are derived from plants. So the plant medicines that we're all starting to become even more familiar with, ayahuasca, um, 
mushrooms, psilocybin mushrooms, and then you have toad medicines. So you have cambo, which is not a psychedelic medicine, but it's a purgative medicine. It is known as like the 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 cleaner of the jungle essentially and then you have bufo which is the strongest psychedelic that exists it's a toad venom made up of 5-meo dmt so in some of these plant medicines you also have dmt derived medicines like ayahuasca um, which is nn dmt so 5-meo dmt gives this dmt that exists inside of the toad venom a different energetic signature and it gives it a very different type of journey and the reason why 5-MeO-DMT in the form of Bufo in this toad venom can be so incredible. So let's, let's talk a little bit about how it's done, like a little bit more context of like the ceremony, et cetera. And then we can talk about like the mechanism of action. And that also gives more context into what, what I experienced and my journey. And so it sets it up really nicely for us. So it's done in a ceremonial setting. The bufo, so the 5-MeO-DMT, the toad venom comes from a toad that is from the Sonoran Desert. So the Sonoran Desert toad venom traditionally was used in the past in rites of passage around, I think it was the rite of passage of going from child to adult, that they would serve this medicine in the Sonoran Desert. And the individual would go through this experience, which this experience is very interesting because door to door, if you do one threshold dose, so you can do a meditative dose and a threshold dose. And how it's prepared is the toad venom is taken, it is dried up, and then it is placed into a pipe and it is smoked. So you inhale the toad venom inside of the ceremony. So a ceremony has what a lot of other plant medicine ceremonies have. There's a setup, there's a container that's held. And this is if you're doing it within like the ceremonial setting, which really I can't imagine someone doing this recreationally, but you have someone who is leading the ceremony traditionally, who is preparing the toad venom, who's weighing out the toad venom, who's preparing the toad venom, who is leading you through a cleansing, et cetera, and then leading you through intention. And then you usually have an assistant or assistance, especially depending on how big your mass is, because some people may, during the beginning of the medicine, when it starts kicking in, they may fall back like traditionally for, with me. So you smoke the medicine in the ceremony. It takes about five to 10 seconds for you to go one, two, three, nothingness. You are nothing and everything all at the same time. So I'm going to speak to what the average type of journey could look like, remembering and knowing that there are many different types of journeys out there that exist. And I'm just speaking to what I've observed from my own personal experience and from the experiences that I've gathered from others that I've worked with in this space. So with a lot of people, the experience is you smoke the toad venom. It's offered to you by whoever's holding the ceremony. Um, and then in a matter of seconds, your awareness dissolves of your physical body, of your reality itself. Like the fabric of your reality itself falls apart. And traditionally, people experience what is called a whiteout. So this whiteout is you just, you have some sense that something happened, that you're experiencing some sort of maybe visual or somatic or whatever it might be, but it feels like your brain has been taken offline. And this is one of the benefits I see with this medicine is that it does take that part of your brain, the default mode network, offline. And the default mode network is responsible for your fight and flight response. And in many of us, especially in this in this society, right, our fight and flight response is so overly activated. So the beauty of this medicine can be that it takes that default mode network and it reboots it. It's like rebooting your fight and flight computer. So it takes that default mode network off. A lot of people have this whiteout experience. And then as you're coming out of the whiteout, as the medicine is wearing off, which it's around, depending on like your mass, how you metabolize the medicine, anywhere from like 20 to 40 minutes. For me, I'm super sensitive. So everything lasts so much longer, always has. Ayahuasca, like all of it, it's always so long for me. 
So for me, the experience was usually around 40-ish minutes, but you start to come down from the experience. And as you're coming back into the awareness of your 3D world, you start to feel more conscious of the experience that you're having. And a lot of people have experiences of quote unquote, finding God, feeling like they're connected to the fabric of the universe, this everything and nothing feeling, to feel that connection, that deep connection to self, that deep connection to source, universe, whatever you subscribe to, God, and that deep connection to other. That's why it's called the God molecules, because it can be very beautiful in that way. And some people also will have, depending on, with an entry into their journey or exit off of the climax, they may have very visual journeys where they're flashing multiple life events before their eyes or they're talking to important people over their lives or like whatever the journey has for them in the same way that a plant medicine journey would. And then around 40 minutes, you're coming back in to really settling back into your body and feeling into reality. And there's this this percolation of emotion that generally happens. So you may laugh, you may cry, you may feel at peace. And then you return back to homeostasis, to this normal state. So it's really interesting because within an hour, you can blast off and then come back to earth having a very transcendental experience. You can also take, and that's known as a threshold dose. So that's like a more ceremonial dose. And then you can also take a meditation dose, which is a lighter dose that a lot of people who are assisting these ceremonies do. They'll take a lighter dose of the meditation dose that they can be in the energy of the medicine they can help you then to purge something that is that wants to be released or they can hold the space for you is it pleasant at all or is it scary because i know i would be scared shitless but that's me same dame i'm like why would anyone yeah do and so that's a good question though right <laughs> and do you need to be in awareness do you need to be a certain type of person to understand the experience you're having so this is my stance with these medicines in general, is that if you don't have a really good base to be able to hold an experience that could potentially take all of the architectures, all of the programming of your reality and break them apart, it can be a very interesting experience. It can be really difficult. For me, Bufa wasn't my first medicine experience. I'd worked with a lot of medicines before. My first psychedelic I ever did was ayahuasca. Mm -hmm. And that was interesting. But I had a journaling practice. I had a meditation practice. I had been a yoga teacher for many, many years. I had somatic practices. I had hypnosis. Like I had all of these practices under my belt. I was already loosening the roots of the tree. So then when it came to pull the tree up, I was able to do so with ease. Mm, I like that. You have to have, or you don't have to, but it is suggested that you do all of the things that you can in your daily life to create a really beautiful, sturdy foundation so that whatever percolates inside of the journey, you can take it and you have the architecture already in place for you to understand what, how, how to integrate it. What does this mean for me? Why is this happening? If you don't have that architecture, what can happen is that, okay, yes, you have this peak experience, which makes you feel something that maybe you've never felt before. But you may not integrate it in a way that would that could really allow a beautiful opening in your life. So it can be really intense. It can be really terrifying. Mm -hmm. And it can be really expansive. I know the first time I ever did it, my boyfriend at the time, when he was going through the experience, also we should talk about the fact that it can provide a very strong ego death. That's part of the process. Yeah. Can you tell us what that means? I heard you talk about that in your podcast and I, I heard about your first experience, which seemed pleasant. And you talked about this reintegration. So, and I didn't really know fully what that meant. Can you talk about ego death and, and, and integration, I guess? Absolutely. Because these are really hot terms, but I don't think a lot of people know what they mean. Yeah. I think outside we're all of talking like, about them. I mean, even people who are talking about circles. them, like, do you understand like what's actually happening with inside right. of the brain, with inside of uh, the psyche, et cetera. So to be able to give that layout is really helpful. So what is an ego death? What is the ego, first of all? The ego is that primal aspect of us, right? The ego exists to help us to survive, to keep us safe, accepted, love, to help us to move forward. 
So I like to think of, I think the ego gets a really bad rap, but the ego is always looking to help us. It's always looking to help us to move forward. The reason why the ego gets a bad rap is because there are some times where there are patterns, beliefs, and behaviors that originally we adapted in order to help us to survive in our reality, generally during childhood, that are now kicking us in the knees. That the responses are so strong that even though we consciously and consciously know that that pattern, belief, or behavior isn't true or doesn't serve us, we can't release it because it's wired in our subconscious mind and it's wired somatically. And that's the ego. That's a primal part of ourselves saying, no, but if you do that, then you might not be accepted. You not you might not be loved. You might not belong. So where an ego death can really serve us in these experiences, if you're ready, I mean, there's a lot of if, 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 if it's energetically correct for your physiology, for your body, if you're ready and you have done the proper work with a practitioner before to be able to prime yourself to go through these threshold experiences, to go through the process of an ego death, which simulates death. When you're going through an ego death, you're actually believing in your conscious mind that you're dying. It is a very interesting experience because what does your ego do? Your ego is like holding on for your dear life saying, trying to do everything it can. So with Bufo, a lot of times what happens is that if you're practicing, if you're going through the ceremony with someone else, the person who is experiencing the ego death, who may be holding on, which of course I can see why, may look to make eye contact with someone around them because the eye contact is what's grounding them into this reality. So a lot of times what you see is people looking to make eye contact as the ego death is trying to take them over so that they can stay within this reality and so that the ego doesn't die off. Once you allow yourself, and the thing with ego death is that it's not something you can really bypass. If it's there, there's a chemical reaction that's happening that's trying to take your default mode network offline. You're going to go offline. Like there, You could do a lot with willpower. But there's only so it will wear you away until you go, okay, fine, and you release. So I would love to get into kind of what happened because you've given us a good background, you know, a cursory understanding in common terms of what that is. You know, if if you're if in layman's terms, why you would do it, how you would kind of set up to do it. So you now in this pretty highly spiritual form, having all these practices, coming into it with the knowledge, with practitioners, with ceremony, space holders, and all of these people that are there to support you. Let's talk about what happened and what's possible if things take a left turn. Great. Let's talk about the very first time just quickly and the very first few times that I did it because the trauma that I experienced with Bufo was not my first time working with this medicine. Got it. So how many times have you done it? I've done this medicine three times. Got it. Three experiences. As many doses, I don't know, but three experiences, three ceremonies. The first ceremony, it was so beautiful and easeful. I smoked the toad venom. I plugged my own nose. So usually what they'll do in order for you to to um, keep the medicine in is that they might plug your nose so that you don't breathe it out so you can really take as much medicine as as you need held my own nose. The person who's holding the ceremony was like, I've never seen that before. Someone just holding their own nose while they're going back, while they're entering into, into this space, which is this nothingness and everythingness at the same time. I fell back and I swear to God, I felt like I was being flossed by angels. I felt everything and nothing. I felt profound love. I felt the most ecstatic connection that I've ever felt in my entire life. And on the way back in, I remember viewing the world from this very zoomed out position and seeing all of us in these meat suits and laughing. And it was, I was told later um, that I was actually laughing as I was coming back in, like giggling to myself of how funny it is that we take ourselves so seriously when we're these souls in our in these bodies having this beautiful, beautiful human experience and that the suffering that we experience is mostly in our head and especially in this Western world. So coming back in, I was like, okay, yeah, this medicine, this total, I don't know what the, what's going on, but like, I want to know more about it. And I loved it going 
from that point going forward, the integration was so beautiful for me. I would have some reactivations. And this is the important part of the story is that with this medicine in particular, you can reactivate. And what does that mean? When your brain enters into theta state, which you can experience when you are meditating, when you're going to sleep, you can reactivate the experience, meaning- like a flashback? Can, yes. Ah. So you can feel as though you are going through the journey again, which can be really awesome or <laughs> really scary and really intense. So my first experiences were beautiful. I maybe had one or two reactivations that were also very beautiful. And I felt like I received a lot from it. And so much so that I was I was really starting to think about and talking to the person I was doing ceremonies with about learning how to serve this medicine myself. So the whole idea of that last ceremony that I did where the trauma stemmed from was to enter into deeper relationship with this medicine because I wanted to serve it. Entering into apprenticeship, learning how to serve, I saw this as a really beautiful tool. With the experience that I had November 9th, 2021, I went in, it was the first time I did it by myself before I'd done it with a partner and I'd done it with two of my really good friends. I decided to do this as a solo journey. I was feeling really, really good. This journey, the intention was crack me open so that I can hold more, more love, more experience, more healing, whatever it might be. I go into the experience. It's all women who are supporting me. It's beautiful. I am in the experience for around an hour and a half to two hours. I take around, I think it's three doses of medicine, which what that looks like is you take the medicine, I would go through the threshold. And as I was starting to come back into consciousness, I would take more and it would send me again. Usually what you see is that someone does one or two doses. Um, if, the, if you've done this medicine before or the person who is holding the ceremony really thinks that you're ready, it's very rare, I think, for you to take more than that one to two doses of the medicine because it's a very strong experience. So I did that three times. So I came up after about hour and a half, two hours of being down, having had the most mind-bending, transcendental, beautiful experience, but I felt incredible. There were things that definitely shattered aspects of my reality, but I had the architecture. It was nothing new. If anything, I was like, oh my gosh, new content. I'm so excited to take this, to integrate this, and to allow it to really shape my life. I remember coming back calling my family as I do after these experiences, telling them about my experiences on FaceTime and thinking, okay, this is great. I can't wait to integrate this. Well, I go to bed on the first night after the experience and I reactivate. I go back into a journey and I have a very strong ego death. I wake up from that like I've been underwater. <gasps> what just happened? But in my mind and in this, in this world, in this medicine world, which I think is something that we really need to look at it is very celebrated to continuously press to push on the limits of experience. There's not a lot of gentleness. I think more and more we're starting to introduce more understanding of the nervous system, of, of taking a more gentle approach, understanding the nervous system and what it can truly hold. Yes, was I doing the work by going through that experience? Totally. But was my nervous system also being taxed? Yes. If you're not sleeping, then your nervous system isn't having time to rebound. So the first few nights, so I go through this, I wake up, I wake up from the experience and I'm like, whoa, that was insane. I go back in, I put my head back down the pillow and I go back into a journey. So for seven nights, every time I put my head in the pillow, I go back into a journey and I have a very strong ego death. Go to sleep, die, go to sleep, die, go to sleep, die. During the day, totally fine. In the first, honestly, for the first four or five days, I was like, I am killing this. I'm doing such good work. Like, look at me, ego coming through. I'm doing such good work. And then at a certain point, I'm like, okay, but I'm not sleeping. I can't perform during the day. And now I'm starting to get scared. On the seventh night, something happened where the ego death was so strong that I came out of it and I felt shook 
and I messaged the person I was doing the ceremony, which I had been messaging with her. And I'm like, listen, I can't do this anymore. Is there anything I can do to help to calm this down? So I started to take GABA and the GABA trans- Which for anyone who doesn't know, can you, that's like a homeopathic, it's like a supplement. Yeah. GABA is a supplement. It's a neurotransmitter and it's something that you can take that's, that's generally very safe. And the GABA just helps to move the journey. So it's not affecting, you're not like going into a full journey essentially. So I took GABA and instead of having journeys now where I was experiencing ego deaths, it then transformed into night terrors. Mm. So then I was having the most insane, vivid night terrors. And I'm not someone who has night terrors. I'm not someone who has that experience. So I'm like, is this better going from having journeys into night terrors? At least I was getting some sleep. I have the night terrors for about a week and a half. So over two weeks, I'm not getting any sleep. I'm having night terrors. And my body starts to associate going to sleep with dying. Right. In all of this, I'm still feeling pretty positive and I'm still feeling pretty good. I'm like, this is hard, but I'm choosing this. I have the tools that are available and I was feeling okay during the day. Something then switched about two and a half weeks later where my circadian rhythm started to sync with this idea of when I go to sleep, I die. So when the sun would start to go down, all of a sudden I would start to feel panic in my chest. My chest would tighten and I'd feel very anxious. And then when it came time for bed, I would have the strongest panic attacks I've ever had one after another, like hours of panic attacks of my body trying to keep me safe, my body trying to keep me from falling asleep so I wouldn't experience an ego death. It's amazing that you were aware of that. Because like, Heidi, I know you're somebody who's experienced panic attacks, right? You you have? Well, yeah, because I was attacked by five people in broad daylight. So my PTSD was a little different. That's what panic attacks came from. <laughs> sure. Okay. So yeah. like I had PTSD. I mean, I didn't have PTSD. I just had panic attacks post-COVID. Yeah. And, it, and I, I read that that's possible. I, I just mm-hmm. developed them. I don't know why, but I had never had one before. So to for some people, people can confuse them sorry i didn't mean to interrupt some no people go. Can confuse them for like heart attacks they can be confused for like a lot of very different very medical things that are terrifying yeah and i mean i experienced them from nothing right i just they came on and so i remember that feeling it was the first time in my life that i felt like oh my god why do i feel like i have to focus on breathing now i feel like i can't breathe i feel like i can't get a breath in like i'm gonna die i can't breathe and it's and it came on so quickly so I think for anyone who's out there listening who can relate to the feeling of having a panic attack, you know, I just think it's very interesting that you had the awareness that you're like, okay, my body's protecting me. Do you know what I mean? I just thought I was going to die out of nowhere. You were almost able to like start to see your way through it. Is that what I'm hearing? So that's the thing is at the time, I did not know. I did not have that awareness. I was like, what the heck is happening? 2020, like hindsight vision is it? So now you're exactly. it together. Like this is now my interpretation oh, and like my yeah, the digestion of what had happened. But at the time I was like, what is going on? I'm okay. I went through this experience. It was really tough, but I did the work and now I'm fine. And now I'm not having night terrors. And so what is the deal? Why is my body freaking out? Why am I having these intense panic attacks? Why am I having PTSD onset weeks later from the experience? Then spa music, someone's straw breathing, anything that was done in the ceremony that wasn't bothering me for two and a half weeks, then started to become a crazy trigger. I couldn't get a massage. I couldn't be in loud environments. I couldn't be around base. Everything became way too much for my nervous system because of what had transpired. It's so, I think it's so important for people to hear that because I, we've talked about it on the show before, but, and Jane, even in our just briefing direction right now, just understanding that panic attacks can look so different from person to person, but also the PTSD is not just about a veteran who comes home from a war. It can take so many different shapes. And I think it's so important for people to understand that PTSD can come from so many different things and look like so many different things and have so many different triggers. I think that was something that made this very difficult to experience is that I had had PTSD in the past from having sexual assault as a kid and as an adult and physical assault. And this took on a very different texture and you're completely right Heidi it's really difficult to find resources if you're not coming from this veteran background although this is incredibly serious incredibly serious if you're experiencing PTSD 
to find resources, to find community of people who, do, who actually understand. Yeah, it can completely disrupt your life. So my understanding is that you started looking for therapists to help you with this. Is this is that correct? And then they didn't necessarily understand it. They couldn't sort of meet you where you were. Can you talk a little bit about that? So I think what made this experience really difficult is that consciously and cognitively, I felt totally fine. So I never went through a psychosis experience. I simply was just turning into this werewolf where before bed, I would have the panic attacks until I ultimately fell asleep and I would have the PTSD triggers going because the psychedelic experience is so layered. It's not just working with somatics with uh, your conscious and subconscious mind. I mean, it works on every aspect of your being. You really have to unwind from every aspect of your being. So, and I knew too that as the symptoms were coming on, if I didn't target this immediately, it was going to be baked in and it was going to become a lot bigger of a problem. I was in extreme suffering. The panic attacks were ripping my life apart. The PTSD was ripping my life apart. Something that a life that I had felt like the foundation was super sturdy. I felt incredible about where I was. And I felt a lot of shame and a lot of guilt. And that's also something to be said about this experience is I was fine. And I went to go work with these medicines in order to go into a deeper knowing of myself and a deeper knowing of my work. And so I had really beautiful intentions. And then I come out of the experience and I had to stop working. I mean, it really, I've been through a lot of interesting contractions in my life. And this one took on a texture that was unlike any other because it was the first time where I was unable to use my conscious and cognitive mind, my will to move myself out of it. It didn't matter whatever lens shift I wanted to give myself. My body was going through an experience that was completely separate from my mind. I felt totally disconnected from my body. I'm like, body, what, what's going on? So is this, was that experience what I'm assuming, but it's always good to ask, is that what inspired you to help others suffering from psychedelic trauma? Yes. And how long did that take? Like, cause you obviously had to recover. Yeah. So for me, I went through, and I'm very lucky that I've been working in trauma for as long as I have, and that I have been working on men- multiple aspects of the being because I saw, okay, where do I believe that this is working on me right now? Okay, where is this? Is this working? Is this somatic? Is this energetic? Is this conscious? Is this where? Let's let's hold off because Jamie and I might know what those terms mean, but I don't think most of our audience does. So can you just before you move forward, yes. please break them down so they keep listening and understanding. Totally. <laughs> so is this within my mind, which is your conscious experience, what you're directly aware of, and your subconscious experience, what your brain's autopilot programming understanding is? Is this somatic? So of the body, is this trauma being held in my body, in my tissues, in my nervous system? Or is this energetic? And for me, it was all of the above. So I had to find practitioners who understood the psychedelic experience to help me blend multiple modalities together to move me from this place of spiritual emergency into spiritual emergence. So... Just so that people could listen, I I wrote the yoga encyclopedia for the world for Microsoft. So like I get all these terms, but I, in my experience, people don't. So for example, I think that the way that, and most people sort of understand the conscious and subconscious, right? And then somatic being in the body, I think Jamie and I very much understand, but could you give one example of that please? And one example of energetic. Totally. So somatic is the way that your nervous system reacts to a certain trigger. Or an example of that can be the way that your nervous system reacts. Your chest contracting, Mm. your body tightening up, your body language changing, your, uh, a lot of times we experience the, something that we have like a collective experience of is when we want to say something that needs to be said, but we're too scared to say it. And it's right in our throat and we're like, oh, it needs to come out. And there's that tightening. That is a somatic experience, an experience of the body, right? Very understandable. Beautiful. <laughs> okay, good. Yes. <laughs> yes. And, I lo- and I love that. I love your commitment to taking the, these words and this architecture and breaking it down so that we can all digest it. I think it's so important because I always take it back to when I started teaching yoga a million years ago, and there were studios that didn't let you use Sanskrit and some that insisted you only use Sanskrit. And years and years in, I finally understood that like 
people don't understand Sanskrit, so they'll be turned off from yoga. So I don't want people to be turned off from understanding this concept because they don't understand the terms. Beautiful. Yeah, I really appreciate that. So energetic. Energetic. So energetic contraction, what can that look like? That can so energy is a little bit different because it's not adhering to the physical laws of our of our reality, meaning you can't see energy. You can't touch energy. The best barometer, so the best measuring tool that we have to understand our own energy is a felt experience in our body. In the same way that when you might be at the grocery store and you feel someone's eyes in the back of your head and you don't know why and you spin around and you make direct eye contact with them, you're like, (laughs) huh, that's interesting. What just happened there? That's energy. When you feel your best friend who's across the world who may be going through a hard time and you don't know why, but you get the sense that you need to pick up the phone and call them, that's energy. The exchange of love and, and emotion. Can you really measure love? No, that's an energy. That's a frequency that is being exchanged, that is held in someone's field that can be exchanged between people. So we can hold emotions. We can hold, there's many different things that we can hold in our energetic field. So the field that extends, we are electromagnetic individuals that creates this energetic field around us in the same way that all, everyone with physiology does, animals, plants, et cetera. So we all have this energetic field around us and what can happen is there can be contractions, so sticky places, let's say, in someone's energetic field or fractures in someone's energetic field if they've experienced trauma, if they're holding on to patterns, beliefs, or behaviors that are creating density. So density is weight, heaviness. So things that are vibrating at a lower frequency. I don't like to use good or bad or right or wrong because that's that's not where we're not trying to create that type of polarity here. Instead, we can recognize that everything has some sort of purpose and something might be more dense, something uh, a more contracted emotion like fear has more density to it and can create dissonance. So it can create separation. It can create repel in our field. It can create heaviness in our field. So energetic components and energetic things that I see with people who come in and work with me because of psychedelic trauma is their field might be fractured because what happens with these medicines? These medicines have a energetic quality. These medicines open up your energy field and they help a lot of things to be released, but if not held in the correct set and setting with someone who understands the energetic constitution of our world, it can also be an opening for other contractions or fractures or for things to happen or come in. So if you are going through an experience where energetically you are moving out of your physical body at a very rapid pace and then coming back into the physical body at a very rapid pace, it can create changes and rifts in the energy that have to be looked at. You're, you're very energetically sensitive after you've worked with these medicines. Mushrooms, ayahuasca, it doesn't matter what it is. If it has a natural, I mean, not even natural, like also alcohol, any substance that is changing your awareness, that is altering your, your awareness, is going to create an opening in your energetic field. So with energetic, you also have to look at what's happening with you energetically. You can't just look at what's happening in your body and within your mind because then you're missing a really beautiful piece of this equation. So yeah, for me, I had to go and piece together and work, find different practitioners to help me with each slice of this puzzle and weave it together using the toolkit that I already had. That makes a lot of sense. So I kind of want to bring this to the end of the story, which then puts us where you sit now in your body, in your body of work, in your career, in your ability to be of service to others. So I guess what you're telling us is, A, the good news is there is a solution. If somebody suffers this, it can be fixed, right? You're not broken forever. You just need to like reintegrate and look at these different pillars of your awareness, the conscious, the subconscious, somatic, and energetic. And you need to have somebody who is an expert at 
taking a look at each of those slices and putting them back together. So can you tell us how you work with people today? Is it the primary bulk of what you do working with people with psychedelic trauma? And what else goes on with ritual and routine? Because I know you have an expansive body of work that includes, you know, retreats and and writings and, and all musings and a podcast and all things like that. Yeah, beautiful. So with psychedelic trauma, yes, this was after seeing that there wasn't when I looked for a practitioner to help me specifically with trauma from psychedelics, I found maybe one or two people that I reached out to who it wasn't their main focus, but they did have some experience with it and they were a dead end. And I couldn't believe with the rise of the psychedelic renaissance, how was it not possible that there wasn't someone who was serving this directly? So I decided to become the liaison. I started an initiative for psychedelic trauma to create educational resources to help people to find the help that they need, whether it's through, depending on where you are in your experience with psychedelic trauma, it can be that you're at the beginning of your experience and you need support physiologically. So within your body, within your mind, maybe you need a, a psychedelic psychiatrist, maybe you need someone who works with applied neurology to help you to rewire your nervous system to reflect a more safe reality. There's all these different. So the way that I like to think of myself is like a general practitioner, not that I'm a doctor, but in the way that you can come to me and I have such a deep understanding of the way that trauma works already from the work that I've been doing with trauma for years that I've now refined over the two years that I've been going through this experience. So I went through the experience in November of 2021. I had my last panic attack, June of 2022. I then spent the rest of 2022 preparing myself and integrating that that experience so that I could start serving people in 2023, January 2023. I couldn't believe how many people were in your comments section saying, this happened to me too. Thank you for sharing about this. So is that where you find the majority of your client base and the people that to work with, people just come to you? Yeah, it's really wild. Like when I did one reel that really put this on the map and it was amazing to hear, especially when you feel so alone going through that experience, how many people have experienced psychedelic trauma? How psychedelic trauma, this is important, different from a bad trip. Well, a bad trip, it means that the content was difficult but you eventually return back to homeostasis and you're able to live your life. Whereas a psychedelic trauma, it affects the texture of your reality weeks, months, years after that experience. There are some people that I've met who've been going and looping and and experiencing trauma from this experience years after it's happened, been to many different psychiatrists, et cetera, and haven't been able to find ease. So to be able to help someone look at all the different sections that are being affected by that trauma and help them to find the right help, whether it be with me and my toolkit or whether it be my toolkit and someone else or someone else entirely. That's what we serve to do is to help people to get the help that they need, no matter what that looks like. And and providing educational resources to people who are serving these medicines as well. Because if you don't know how to steward someone through psychedelic trauma and the medicine that you're serving has the potential to create that for someone, you have no business serving that. What is the process of being able to serve a psychedelic? Like, what is the training? What is the, like, what's involved? So because a lot of these substances are not legal in the United States fully. Oh, I didn't realize they weren't. (laughs) Yeah. So... I'm not going to get into specifics because I don't want to state something that's wrong, but a lot of these substances are illegal still. Some of them have been have been decriminalized, like mushrooms mm-hmm. have been decriminalized. And there's a lot more that's being decriminalized. But because of that, there's not a lot of regulation. So there are some people who do do their due diligence and work with different associations like MAPS, for example, which is a big steward of psychedelic research. I mean. They just help to get MDMA approved to help veterans who have PTSD to resolve that PTSD. That's incredible. That's a really beautiful use of these medicines. But there are some people who go through trainings, who go through mentorships. And then there are some people who say, you know, I really liked that experience that I had with mushrooms. Seems easy enough. I'm going to hold the space for it. So it's a little like the Wild West. 
It can, yeah. Yes. It's very much like the Wild West. So you really need to do your research on whom you're trusting. You really need to do your research. Psychedelics are not a crisis medicine. I think that is so important to know. We're all, it's this idea that psychedelics can be, or not, I'm not going to say, I'm not going to generalize, but there is a lot of hype around psychedelics that it can be the solve. When it's, mm-hmm. it's not the solve, psychedelics are a container in the same way that meditation mm-hmm. is a container. But this container works on every aspect of your being. So you better be ready to be able to work with this. And you need to have reverence and you need to have respect for these medicines. And do your, research to find someone who is working with you months before the experience is happening, holding you through the experience, and then months after. It is so important that you work with someone who also recognizes the difference between a medicine and a poison. What's the difference? Intention and dosage. Right. There's a podcast called Cover Story. Are you familiar? I'm not, no. So it's a New York Magazine podcast, and they really did a deep dive into the world of psychedelic and MDMA treatment. And by the way, I've been interested in learning about all of this since back in my drug days, because I did always see the value and have reverence for drugs. I just personally can't manage them in a responsible way, and and they took my life down. But I do understand, especially for people with trauma or PTSD, and all of the research they were doing even back in the days when I was experimenting. So I've always been fascinated with this category, but it always struck me like, yeah, if this got into the wrong hands or like, because you have then vulnerable people who are under the influence. And my God, what if the person holding space for that ceremony or that, that moment has nefarious intentions. And so that podcast really covered it. And I don't think it should dissuade. You can tell I'm like pretty pro investigating into this world, even as a sober woman for over 20 years. I think that, you know, what's for one person might not be for everybody. It might not be for me. I don't think that means it's wrong for someone else. But I do think that it's become so popularized that it's almost the Wild West. No, not almost. It's the Wild West. And so I appreciate, Mary, people like you really getting out there, first of all, telling the truth. I think it's important that you as an advocate for plant medicine and for these type of psychedelics didn't hide this part of your story. I really appreciate your vulnerability and transparency. And then your ability to say, hey, we've got a problem here and there's a hole in the market. There's a white space. Let me step up and serve. Thank you. I really appreciate that reflection. And exactly, if we're going to go through this beautiful renaissance, which can bring a lot of healing that maybe wasn't available for the people who really need it most, if we're going to do that, we need to do it and support the whole spectrum of the experience, not just like the juicy life-changing stuff, but also when things go sideways. How can we, because there's medicine with inside of that experience as well. Going through that fundamentally changed my life now in a really beautiful way because I have this template that's available to be able to support people. And it was able to show me the fractures of my foundation where I thought it was starting where it really truly wasn't. So if we're able to hold the full spectrum of the experience and hold people who are going through the trauma, then they have a chance at being able to access that wisdom inside the medicine. But if you tell someone, and this is kind of the rhetoric here, that it's a part of the experience, that you're getting the experience that you need. I don't necessarily think that's completely untrue, but if someone is dysregulated in their nervous system, they're stuck in fight and flight, they're having panic attacks, they're never going to access, or not never, but they're not going to access that wisdom of the experience that could be extracted, whether that be resilience, whatever it could be, that can't be extracted if you're in dysregulation. So if we can all do our part in being able to hold this space with a lot of reverence, with with a lot of respect and hold each other and create the resources to hold this renaissance so that it can really unfold in a safe, articulate way, then this looks really, really beautiful for our society. So to be able to be a steward and to help to share this, sharing the stories just, I mean, it starts then to put that in someone's field so people know that it's possible, that it's possible to heal, that's possible to return back to homeostasis and to also grow from it. We don't share any of this also to put you in fear. It's never to be afraid. It's to be aware so that you have the resources available to make choices that feel energetically correct for you. So that's one slice. It's about half of what we do here at Ritual and Routine. Beautiful. Well, I know we're like 
running out of time. Heidi, do you have anything else? I know we got to get to the last little segment and I want people to obviously go and check out all of the beautiful things that you do. This is one part of your story. There are many parts of your story that they can also find out um, over on Ritual and Routine. And we'll get to all the places they can find you in a minute. But Heidi, should I serve it over to you for a karma call? All right. Thank you, Jamie, for singing so beautifully. Our last segment is called Karma Call, as Jamie so beautifully sang. And we ask all of our guests, what is one small actionable item that they could try out for a short period of time that would yield a large result? So small action, big result. Talk to yourself in the mirror. Take two deep breaths. Look into your eyes. And lock, I mean, dedicate, let's say three minutes to just locking eyes with yourself in the mirror. Because when you look inside of the pupils in in the mirror, you're you're moving past all of the different lens shifts, all the different programmings, all the different I should or that or limiting beliefs, and you're really able to see your soul. And when you can come back to that zero point of who you truly are and see, oh, that's you in there. I see you. I hear you. I'm here for you. That reconnection to self. Then you can come at your world from a place of proactivity. I choose rather than reactivity. It is happening to me. Powerful, powerful stuff, my friend. I'm so grateful that you chose to share your journey with us today. It was really, really um, inspiring, even though it was like a scary experience. I'm inspired because also I, I feel like even if it's not psychedelic trauma, if you're just having panic attacks or fear, it kind of gave me the idea that like you can move through it and there there is an answer. You just need to go after it. So thank you for sharing that. Hey, where can our listeners find out more about you? Where can they sign up for your courses or learn all about what you do? I want to thank you, Jamie and Heidi, for having me on here to be able to share this story and to be able to share this information about these medicines uh, with love and grace. You can find me at Ritual and Routine on Instagram. I have Preve by Ritual, which is a really beautiful place. If you're looking for a place where you can participate in practices like hypnosis, energy healings, we just did a beautiful one on bloodline and generational trauma this morning. We do breath work. We do somatic experiencing practices. Really, It's really great for people who have intellectualized their patterns, beliefs, and behaviors, who have made the unconscious conscious and are ready to put things into action. Because when you put things into action, then you're actually able to have your reality reflect that back to you. The thing that you want to be, who you desire to be, then becomes the reality when you're using these action items. So that's a really beautiful place that we have that exists for people who want to go into a deeper relationship with this self-work and to really move themselves, again, out of reactivity and into proactivity. So Instagram is definitely the best place to find me. I also have a podcast, the Ritual and Routine Podcast, that's available where all podcasts are available and my website, www.ritualandroutine.net. Those are the best places to find me. Yes, girl. She's got her elevator pitch. She like spit that out. I love it. Okay. Well, thank you for joining us. And let me do my elevator pitch, which is to thank our audience for joining us as well. And to remind them to subscribe to the show so you never miss an episode. And also don't forget to follow us on the gram at Off The Gram Podcast. We'll see you next time.